This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Uh, hi everyone, my name is Yalda Hijabi and I'm a GIS and communications cell worker. Sorry for the noise, I don't know what it's doing. Um, I might not even need to use this, but uh, this class was, this panel actually is um, going to talk about the works and some of the things that they've done as Villanova scholars. and. Our class in GIS uh, last semester had a focus where we talked about different scholars that um, represent Villanova, and the class was called Reading Villanova. And we had the opportunity of having different panels of professors come and speak about their works and how their works are interdisciplinary and relate to each other. So I'll just ask our panels today to introduce themselves and some of the things that they've been doing. Hi everyone, I'm Heidi Rose, and I'm a professor in the communication department. Uh, and I, I, my, my strongest interdisciplinary experience has been um, the wonderful teaching of Interdis One in the honors program. So this is a, a freshman and sophomore, uh, three semester interdisciplinary kind of program, and I've been able to do Interdis One, so working with freshmen their very first semester here at Villanova. Hi everyone, I'm Mary Angela Papalastri and I'm in the Computing Sciences Department. Um, the reason I'm here, I believe, is because of a wonderful program that uh, some of us ran, uh, uh, the Magic School program here at Villanova University that combined work from people from many different departments. Uh, so it was a truly interdisciplinary program uh, connecting uh, students at Villanova professors at Villanova and uh, kids from around Philadelphia uh, to build a magic school. Hi, I'm uh, Doug Norton. I'm in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at Villanova. Like I'm looking at the nothingness one off at my time. There's nothing there. There's too many people over. It's like, hi, y'all. Um, in, in my teaching life, I tend to do things about mathematical modeling, which is connecting with math with all sorts of things in the real world, but tends to be that sort of traditional connection to the sciences. But in my uh, mathematician playing life, uh, at the annual joint math meetings, uh, for about 10 years now, I've run sessions on mathematics and the arts. I love connecting mathematics to places where people don't usually think of them being connected. Thank you. Um, so I just want you guys to elaborate a little bit more about your work. Um, I know the first work, the work that we read from you today is involves performance and rhetoric, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what that is and how it's interdisciplinary. Sure. So uh, my area in the communication field is called performance studies, which, and nobody ever knows what performance studies is because it sounds sort of like maybe it's theater, but it isn't because it's not in a theater program, it's in a communication program. And so, um, in general, performance studies is a way to look at how performance functions in many different aspects of human communication. And in, um, in the communication discipline, performance and rhetoric are intimately linked because they, they really have their origins in ancient Greece. So in the world of oral tradition moving towards literacy, the world of oratory, the world of theater, um, from Homer to the Greek um, 
tragedy playwrights, uh, the lyric poets, all of that, and all of that gets explored in, um, in Interdis One. Uh, interdisciplinary Humanities one. So I teach the, liter the literature component of that course and I do it as a performance course. So we're looking at texts as performance because of course that's how they were, uh, that's how they were meant to be experienced, not, um, not in, the, in the written form but in the spoken and fully embodied form. And so, uh, the, so the interdisciplinary connection within my really, within my own work is rhetoric and performance within communication and then it extends to the world really to the world of literature um, and even uh, not so much in interdis one but even in cultural anthropology because much of the work that we do is looking at um, how, how do we understand texts and bodies and speaking and you know sort of being in the world in that way so in interdis one um, the the students study a little bit of Homer, um, a lot of the plays, and uh, and some Sappho, but all lifting, of course, in translation, but lifting those words from the page and embodying them in performance. And so we look at performance as a method of inquiry, as um, as a, a process of understanding, a process of discovery, and there is a product. Um, it's the students do write some papers for me, but they're more reflection papers of the performance process, so that the performance work that they that they share with each other um, really is the product of their analysis. It's the product of their inquiry, and um, and it's a way of understanding both themselves and the text as um, kind of a a matching. Um, I could probably go on and on, but I'm going to pass the mic down. But that is that a good start? <laughs> okay. Um, Okay, so um, it, it's really interesting that we're in this panel together because um, our program also had to do with performance. Um, and um, so uh, the basic premise um, and basic motivation of uh, creating the magic school uh, was to uh, combine <coughs> the study of theater and science. Um, so um, the program involved uh, the collaboration of faculty from many departments, uh, from the math department, from the chemistry department, from chemical engineering, from physics, um, from history, um, and from theater, of course, uh, to um, and computer science. To computer science. Computer science. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> uh, yes, computer science and. Um, um, and the idea uh, is to tie all this together uh, through performances. Um, and so um, our objective was to uh, use a unifying theme uh, to study the science and to put it together through a performance. Um, and a secondary theme was that uh, we wanted to uh, <coughs> use this as a way of uh, getting students interested in science and in performance, um, and also uh, use this to um, work with underprivileged kids from all around Philadelphia <coughs> who would come and watch the performances that were created by older kids <coughs> um, who had studied 
the science and the theater and put it all together. Uh, so there were many phases. Uh, there was the phase of the students at Villanova and the faculty uh, who would put together um, the program. Um, there were high school students from the uh, area high schools uh, who uh, came and studied with professors and grad students and undergrads who helped with the program uh, here at Villanova. They went to laboratories and uh, studied the <coughs> science and uh, with theater um, uh, activities they learned to put it together into an interactive performance uh, that would then take place during their final week of the program. Um, at which point we would bring younger kids, um, different groups from different summer camps uh, in the area, um, to experience the so-called magic school that they created, which was inspired by Harry Potter's books, mm -hmm. uh, but was not Harry Potter. Uh, they, they created their own American school of magic, complete with all their imagery and um, lessons that they uh, gave and uh, including the train ride and uh, <laughs> we, we enlisted everybody. <laughs> uh, we got Amtrak to help us, we got SEPTA to help <laughs> us. Uh, so um, it, it started uh, downtown and came to Villanova where the lessons were. So it was interdisciplinary. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. You are, uh, you are. Maybe, I, maybe I should stop because <laughs> I could go on. I have no Harry Potter reference for you except my great identification with Hagrid, who's a large guy with a beard. Always <laughs> 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 like Hagrid. Um, two of the things that I looked, I noticed in Heidi's uh, paper that I know the class read that, that, that struck me. There are two words that, that hit me. One was uh, a liminal space, sort of at this boundary, at this transition, at this sort of in between kind of thing. And that's what we often don't see in education in general, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm teaching a first year course for biology students um, on mathematical models and we're doing compartmental models. So you're either susceptible or you're infected or you're recovered and those categories are they're in compartments. Um, and that's how we tend to teach a lot. We teach in a lot of these compartments. And yet what's important in those, in those epidemiology models is the arrows between the two compartments that connect them and how you transition from one to the other. But in fact, so much of the education that we don't look at is about how you can't cover a square space with a bunch of circles unless they overlap, or, or else you don't cover some stuff. And so much of education is overlap, and we treat it very compartmentally. And so that, I think, is a lot of that transition st mm -hmm. stuff and the boundary stuff, and that's what we try to do with, that's why I enjoy doing mathematical modeling, because it's connecting it to the world. And that's the other word that I noticed in, in Heidi's comment and in her paper was uh, about embodiment. How the performance was an embodiment of uh, the rhetoric that was going on. And so that brings up the age-old philosophical questions of is, is the world an embodiment of, of mathematics or is the mathematics an expression of the natural relations that are in the world going the other direction? And exploring those connections isn't limited to the traditional connections. Like, for example, in sciences, biology was often the one that was left out, and that's when I love teaching modeling and biology. Of course, it's, oh, here's one of my kids, fine. Um, <laughs> because it's sort of the unexpected place to use the mathematics. But then even stretching that farther and going in things like, like the arts where it's just unexpected sort of connections. And so in 
in things, whether it's in poetry or in music or in art, the question is, well, are you math geeks superimposing your mathematical worldview on the stuff that you're seeing? And we say, no, we're teasing out this inherently mathematical nature that's in those things that people who don't usually look at it from our perspective try to deny is there. It's, it's, we're, we're not forcing it on, but we're kind of discovering it lying within there. And so it's, it's making those kind of connections, whether it's in these art session things that I do at the January meetings or the poetry. I don't know how you people found that poetry thing I have hidden on my webpage about the poetry <laughs> reading from a few years ago. Um, but I guess it's, it's looking for those kinds of connections in some non-traditional ways because um, it's like the preparation for the last test in the class I gave when students were asking, what would be like the homework problems? And I say, no, our goal is that when you walk out into the world, you're probably not going to run into homework problems. You're going to run to real world things, which bring lots of different aspects into to bear. And so we're trying to provide you tools, but also provide you a context. Oh, yeah, and that was the other phrase I liked in Heidi's thing, where she talked about text and context. I like little linguistic twists, but those, the word text in both of them is actually what it's about. It's about the words, it's also about the space in which that uh, Greek theater and rhetoric sort of stuff happens. I'm, I'm babbling, sorry. Actually, can I jump in for a second? Yes. Um, so just a- uh, Rebuttal, oh no. <laughs> jumping off what Doug said, that, that concept of compartmentalizing is, uh, I, I think, really, really important, and the problem with compartmentalizing. And so what I also neglected to say is what's part of the interdisciplinary humanities course is um, it's always two or three courses that are intertwined. So in Interdis One, I'm doing that literature section um, that's driven by performance, but then there's philosophy and there's theology, and, uh, and that, um, that in between that liminal space among all three is really fascinating, and it re we, we refuse to let students um, um, admit any kind of compartmentalizing among those three areas, so that we're looking, we're, when we're you know, reading some of the ancient Greek philosophy, we're seeing how that gets then um, shaped and advanced and maybe maybe addressed differently through some of the plays and what it means to have a, a you know a, a philosophical text that's written versus the the same kinds of ideas um, explored through performance and um, and what does it mean even for the students to perform the the philosophy texts versus you know the the pieces that were created for performance and then even with theology there's a lot of um, I mean we look at the origins of theater that came out of religious ritual, and you know, and so students don't you don't typically know that, and so to understand all of how all of those boundaries are really blurred, um, and to allow that um, you know that learning space um, without compartmentalizing is, I think, the the core of interdisciplinary learning. And I know, I mean, I think that um, what honors does with that whole sequence is really trying to. You know, not just talk the talk of interdisciplinary learning, but really walk the walk. And it's, it's. Um, I wish that it was across the entire university. I mean, I, th I, I wish that we had these kinds of connections all the time because then we wouldn't be compartmentalized. I don't even think we should have colleges. You know, I mean, I think it should all be, the d and departmentally, it's really a problem. Uh, I'll just throw out one other thing. Gender and women's studies is an interdisciplinary area. Cult cultural studies is an interdisciplinary program. GIS is an interdisciplinary program. Like these interdisciplinary named programs um, draw faculty from all over <coughs> the different areas, and, and I wish they could be supported even more. Um, I know it's hard for people to let go of, well, I'm a history person, I'm a math person, I'm a communication person, but, um, but if we are gonna walk this walk, uh, we have to realize how much um, how, how much those boundaries are really um, artificial they're constructed <coughs> you know and they're so blurred 
I want to say something <laughs> about that too. Um, so I feel that the connections are always there. Uh, and in some ways, <coughs> academics, us, um, our work is about drawing these boundaries and creating um, boundaries. Uh, in some cases, um, it, uh, I forget how you called it in your uh, paper, but it was about uh, uh, finding, um, analyzing, and creating, uh, and finding patterns, as mathematicians mm -hmm. might say. Uh, computer scientists might uh, call it modularizing um, uh, a view of some subject. And so a lot of our work as academics has to do with drawing these boundaries. Um, and so it's just a matter of looking and discovering the underlying world that is actually very much together. And even as we're drawing these boundaries and we're using this language like finding patterns or finding abstraction or uh, analyzing um, or modularizing, we're kind of coming together and, uh, and we're doing the same thing. Mm. Well, you guys touched a lot on what I was going to ask next in terms of the fact that like the the Institute of Global Interdisciplinary Studies, a lot of what we do is we focus on different um, aspects of different uh, departments at Villanova. We're all, more than I think half of the people in GIS are uh, triple majors actually. But I wanna know like what suggestions you have for Villanova as an institution to kind of change our department. You know, like how can communi the communications department, for instance, become more interdisciplinary? And not just what the departments have to do and the professors, but more of what the students within those departments can do and kind of take action for their own education. Do you want to start? We don't have to go in order. I mean, I'm happy to start, but we don't have to go in order. Let's start from that yeah. end. <laughs> I'd rather bounce off people than have to take it in the company. But, uh, <laughs> I know there were discussions the last time the core was revised, which some of the faculty have been through several versions of that, about building in some things not quite as intense as the uh, as the honors uh, three-way thing we have going there, but um, to have it, it requires that you have a co-taught course or two courses that are connected. And it was called structurally too difficult to actually make that happen. And Maybe we just need to revisit that a little bit. Uh, sometimes change comes from the ground up and sometimes you have to build scaffolding and, and structure on which you can hang that change. And uh, to make something like that work out, uh, maybe we can do something like that. It's also on us to, even when the, the curricular structure doesn't suggest it, to fold in things in our classes with our students to make them think from a different perspective without losing track of what the goals are for that individual course. I think I think the most recent change in the core that that took away certain requirements and uh, and does permit students to have maybe three <coughs> three majors or you know double major and a couple minors and all of that all, all of that um, opens up the possibility of crossing disciplines in a really meaningful way so I think I think that's all really great uh, but I think it's also I think it is on the faculty 
to a certain extent because we get we get I we'll just use a giant buzzword but we just become so um, you know siloized solo it's it uh, we don't talk enough across disciplines and we don't engage enough with each other even if we have the best of intentions we're also you know we're sucked into our own world and it's really easy to just stay there so you know I don't know if there could be more I really don't know but I think it's I think I think somehow I know when I teach some of my classes and I'm so happy at some of the lower level comm classes when I get political science majors I get um, you know, I, I get history majors, I get English majors, mm -hmm. and that dynamic is always great. Um, the, the interdisciplinary connections that people bring within the, the course are really, really great. Uh, um, but it doesn't happen enough because at the upper level classes, when things get really, really interesting, we're only teaching our majors because there's no room for anybody else. So then, it, you know, that, that can be frustrating. And then if those majors are also peace and justice or GWS or GIS or their history or English or whatever, then that's great. But I, I wish we had a more um, formalized connection. And I and I think you're right. We shouldn't have just kind of, kind of went, ah, oh, structurally that's too hard. Let's not do it. I think at the at the higher levels of core curriculum committees, you know, maybe um, do some more creative thinking to make it happen. I'm thinking about the mental science experience, which uh, at least on the science side uh, is, I think, a, a good step forward. And um, uh, I think it's just what uh, you said about it's up to the faculty also to make use of this and to propose courses that are truly interdisciplinary is what we make of it. Um, it might be nice to have a framework like that where uh, courses that are even more interdisciplinary in nature that combine the arts and the sciences, um, that the core curriculum is under some strain to ensure that students are well-versed in the sciences and in uh, liberal arts. So there are some constraints that we have to work with. Um, but I think we are making progress. Thank you. Um, and in terms of what students that are here today, like if you have any advice for them, and I'm sure they can kind of communicate this to their peers as well, but what can they do to develop a more interdisciplinary framework during their experience at Villanova? Well, let's see both at the academic level and the student life level. I think I, that's another area that uh, I don't think gets enough attention and that's really drawing, creating a bridge between what you're doing outside of class and what you're doing inside of class. You know, So there are so many opportunities to link what we do academically to what you're doing in the bazillions of clubs and uh, volunteer. You know, so, so some of the service learning communities are great and other kinds of learning communities, I think that's a way to develop more interdisciplinary understandings and I, I, I think that should grow I would love to see that grow even more and then um, and then all of these different programs you know so sometimes I, I'm talking to sophomores and they don't even know that gender and women's studies exists and and it's 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 fairly prominent I think I mean it's there it's on the websites it's every it's kind of everywhere but if you don't look for it you don't find it and so I think to, to go beyond 
the the strict um, department kind of major, but to rec you know to just look for other other learning opportunities, look at peace and justice, and look at GIS, and look at all these other uh, areas that aren't necessarily departments, but they're programs that you can you know that you can draw from, and um, and making those links outside the classroom. I agree, um, and I really think that it is mostly up to the students because there's only so much the faculty can do and the administration can do uh, to link all your knowledge here at Villanova together. Um, after all, in order to teach you well, we do need to separate the subjects to some degree. Uh, we need to organize it so that it's possible for you to um, see it uh, in an orderly fashion, let's say. Um, as uh, faculty here, I think we often have the experience of um, teaching students in one course and then teaching them in another and then hearing that, oh, we didn't learn this, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, so finding connections between your courses is your job as a student. Um, the, we're, for the most part, you know, no matter what we say about being interdisciplinary, we're going to separate things out for you. And it's your job to put it back together again and combine it and make something new out of it. I suddenly thought in his last comments about a recipe, where there are all these separate things in a recipe, and if you stir them in some appropriate order connected to the appropriate parts, something really yummy would be the fat guy who says this. Something <laughs> <laughs> um, really delicious comes out, but it takes lots of different things to pull together. So anyway, that was my detour from what he said. Um, so I, I have two things. One of them is contradictory advice. Good analogy. <laughs> yes. And one of those is because of this new room in the core, to find places like minors and concentrations to explore, um, but another is sometimes I find students who do that because they're sort of collecting credentials as opposed to really kind of engaging in what's mm -hmm. there. Because I got two majors and three minors and a concentration and a partridge and a pear tree. I don't know. It's, a, it's almost like they want a lot of things mentioned on their resume, but to genuinely engage with them. And the, the other extreme of this contradictory advice is to don't do those, but take stuff because it looks interesting. You know, and then it can be all over the place because it's not fulfilling my second major or my third concentration, but because, man, this would be cool. And the other thing, apart from that contradictory advice, is stuff that I say usually in broader context instead of curricular, but I think it makes sense there too. And that is to push yourself outside your comfort zone. You know, this is the easy choice. This fits in nicely. Even though it's another department, it kind of fits in with what I'm doing, you know. I, um, take something that doesn't look so comfortable, but will push you a little bit outside. Because in general, I think about, well, because yesterday was Pi Day, I have to mention circles. <laughs> um, there, it's often the circle that's like it's us and them. Uh, and the more you push yourself, you push that circle with a bigger radius, then you're including more people in the us versus them. I mean, a service learning thing, you think, well, I'm going to go help those people in Appalachia or in the inner city or something. And you go and you engage with them and surprise <coughs> their people. You know, and it's, it's us instead of them. It's a bigger us. Um, and that can happen in terms of curriculum, too. You take interesting things that aren't part of us, the, the way I'm used to thinking or approaching problems or attacking problems. But get a little more global and interdisciplinary to choose a couple of random words um, in, in your approach to not only your life, but your curriculum and how that pieces together. And with a lot of more interesting in ingredients, you make for a more delicious dish there at the end to come back to that. So. <laughs>
Yes. <laughs> um, uh, thank you so much for answering all my questions, and I'll just open it to the floor if anyone has any questions. When we are referring to interdisciplinary studies, um, do you think that there's more of a focus, or there should be more of a focus on if you're a science major, go into interdisciplinary uh, back into the arts and vice versa? Or is it maybe of equal value to say two different sciences or two different arts or combining arts and sciences? Well, <laughs> I think I will, I will have to echo what Doug said a moment ago, which is go with what you find interesting. You know, if I, I don't know that there's I don't think there's a formula. I would not say there's a formula to say it must be this or it must be that or it's better this or it's better that. But if you if you really believe in the in the potential for interconnectedness, no matter what you're selecting, you will find those connections. You know, that's what that's what I would say. I agree. <laughs> well, I would say I, I would agree they're both valuable, but I think in, in different ways. I mean, if you, again, if you think about your expanding circle analogy, I mean, if you're a science person and you take some stuff in another science, it doesn't necessarily connect to yours. You think, well, I've got this scientific method framework now. How does that play out differently in this related but different context? And it's also a value to say, well, let me get on a completely other side of the universe and think about things from the humanities point of view. I, I think in the core. There's English history, philosophy, theology, all, all that sort of stuff. It, it's very humanities heavy in some sense, and, and social sciences. And then, well, go take a couple of science courses because it's good for you. It's like cod liver oil or something. Um, and math, I don't know. Used to be two, now it's one. Don't get me started. <laughs> but um, at least that's a mental science experience that I still have one today. That's really neat because their course is designed for people who aren't specialists. Because the, the old core science requirement was, well, go suffer through some science and see how the science people do it. And the mental science experience is more like, well, be one of us and you know, roll up your sleeves and do some stuff. But also think about connections. There are requirements in that, in that mental science thing that you connect it to other parts of, of your life and other parts of the world. So I think both of those are really important. That, and like Heidi said, whatever tickles your fancy. I think a little of both is good, but at least do one to expand your perspective and make those connections. There is a, a certain, uh, maybe, maybe what you're uh, asking about, there is a perceived imbalance in the, between the sciences and the liberal arts that I, I sense um, a lot of people in the liberal arts feel that the sciences are hard or you know not as uh, welcoming as the liberal arts. So um, it's a it's an unfortunate um, state of affairs. So um, it, it would be nice. Uh, may maybe you're <coughs> asking something about that also, right? About the, this imbalance. That there is, that, that, that there doesn't seem to be so much symmetry there between the two. Right, because there's a perception that maybe there's a perception that everybody needs to be able to read well and write well, but not everybody's going to go do the hard science stuff, even though the reading well and writing well is hard in its own way. But there's more of a sense of I think of you need this in every aspect of your real life, you know. 
and yeah. not as and and but if you're doing science or math, that means at the college level, that means you're really committed to uh, a profession that's related to it, which you know, which um, which isn't necessarily true. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's partly that. Yeah. <laughs> one more come back on that one. That is, uh, I I encourage students to take some statistics using our, our department has math and stats. And the way I usually put it is, you even for the math people, you'd be hard pressed to find a integration by partial fractions in a newspaper. But I challenge you to find one page that doesn't have statistics on it. Mm-hmm. The economics page, the political page, the sports page, even the comics occasionally. You know, I mean, it's a data-driven universe into which we're shoving all you unsuspecting uh, victims. You know, and you need to have some awareness of numerical sorts of stuff without being all geeked out and being the science major kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean. It, the math stuff goes back to the trivium and the quadrivium in the Middle Ages, the foundations of modern universities. I mean, the quadrivium was was arithmetic and geometry and music and astronomy. Number as number, number in space, number in time, and number in space and time is the way that you could talk about it. So not quite the Pythagoreans that said number is mm-hmm. everything, but um, they were an interesting old kind of rhetorical bunch. Um, but there, it's there, it's everywhere, it's pervasive. And of course you need to know, they, they, they called it read and write and arithmetic back in the day for a reason, because those things are all important and you need a little bit of quantitative stuff. But I also urge my science and math geek side of the people that don't lose track of the value of some Shakespeare or some Canterbury Tales or some 1066 or some history or whatever. Uh, be an edu- you know, you, in the end, we don't want you to leave here as a math major, an English major, we want you to, to leave as an educated person ready to be a responsible citizen. And that's a little more complicated than the checking off a bunch of lists on, on core curriculum. Actually, I had a question for you. Did just curious how you chose the um, the articles that you chose? Like, how did that happen? I thought I'd hidden mine. I don't know how you. So last semester, our capstone class was called Reading Villanova, and Dr. Kiva sent us a very, very, very detailed Dropbox document of every work that you can imagine from Villanova scholars, and um, our capstone class that uh, Bridget and I and Megan over there were part of, um, we selected different works from that Dropbox, and yours was one of the ones you picked up. And then Dr. Kata just kind of facilitates like who goes with what. He did do that. And a little bit of this. Anyone else? Yeah. Could you uh, discuss just a little? Somebody was talking about having an audience. And now your audience can not only talk back to you instantaneously, <coughs> they can talk to each other and talk to the whole world instantaneously. How does what you're discussing uh, fit with people walking around with earphones, walking into walls? How does this relate to what's going on with, with the kid, with us now? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I, I think in, in one sense, uh, it makes us aware of how very, how expansive the world is and how small it is, right? And, and, and how, how, um, how we have to be even better listeners and have to be even <coughs> better uh, at um, 
responding, not reacting, and that you know that dialogue is continuing to be uh, you know incredibly important, and that you know that um, maybe that 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 a that a tweet is not really dialogue you know at all. That much of much of this instantaneous kind of communication that we see going on through various social media platforms is not that's not dialogue that what we do in um, seminars, and while I will always believe in the power of the, the in-person, face-to-face classroom, um, is, is for that dialogue. It's about, the, you know, it's about what, happens, what happens together in the space. And so even if it's, a, if it's um, you know, in, the, in that world of performance, if there's audience and performer, but that audience responds that it's a dialogue. Even if the audience isn't necessarily saying anything, there's that sense of dialogue and connection, which you don't get um, in the same way at all in a, you know, in a virtual. So I think to, to be the best citizens that we can be, to be the best, um, you know, to, do, to be conscious communicators, because of course you're gonna be participating in that world, but that, uh, you know, um, to have a consciousness about it uh, and, to, and to recognize the inherent need for dialogue, uh, that's part of what we do. Um, I, well, I think the question was that the... Well, even though it's not communication, <laughs> I want to throw on the, the sort of the technology implication is also, uh, one thing that I really enjoy is when I'm trying to cross some boundaries and read about or do some stuff about which I'm certainly not an expert, which is a large list, including math, a lot of math. Um, just to click on a word or look it up, and there's this weird internet thing. Thank you, confused <laughs> people. Um, that you know, in a, in a younger day, was well, go find the Funk and Wagnalls and look it up on the encyclopedia. And oh dear, it's a, it's at home. I can't look it up. I mean, the the universe is at, at people's fingertips now, and it's so it's so much easier to go outside what I was saying before your comfort zone. I mean, you can you can try to get some background. Although there's the analogy of what my mom always told my dad. Well, he believes anything if he sees it on TV. The, the modern thing is you believe anything if you see it on the web. Danger, danger. <laughs> there's all sorts of junk out there. But there is so much, if you, if you can be selective about what kind of sources you believe, there's so much that can stretch what you understand by giving you a little bit more background. Well, I'll have to comment on that. <laughs> um, certainly, um, I, I would say that it is a step forward. Um, uh, because uh, maybe uh, when when you have everything on TV, uh, there's just a TV, right? Whereas on the web, there you it's very easy to also find alternative views. So being critical becomes a little easier if you want to. Uh, so I think uh, it's a different kind of dialogue. Um, maybe not what you're talking about, but um, there is a whole new dimension being added. Mm -hmm. Can I add one uh, more thing to that? Just, just to bounce back on one thing she said about that it's easy to find different views. Ironically, there's so much at people's finger available at their fingertips these days that, that people then find things that reinforce what they already believe. And I think that's kind of spiraling <coughs> us down into some strange political and social discourse that's getting down in, in the mud somehow. <laughs> Though it's ironic, because there's so much more at your disposal that you find the stuff that reinforces what you already think instead of actually broadening your perspective. It's a two-sided sword thing. Yeah, very true. But if you look, you can find well, it. But you have to do that. You've got you to have to, to do that. You have to be an active right. uh, 
reader. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious, so you were talking <coughs> about how there wasn't a proposed for, it was talked about having a co-taught classes, um, but that they thought it couldn't work out logistically. If you, and I've been in a few co-taught classes and I think it's really beneficial if you can co-teach a class or do something with a different uh, faculty member or a different like subject matter like where you're missing your work, like, connecting those dots, I think, mm -hmm. would be nice to have it in time draw lines with the rest of it. You get to do it with that I cool do. honors thing. That's yeah, great. Yeah, it's an it's, it's, um, unbelievable gift, yeah, being able to do it in honors. So I love working with the, um, I think, you know, connections with, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, the communication philosophy, the theology, like that, that works, the, it works really, really well. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I really love it. But, um, but I mean, almost, I, you know, I, you could create almost anything um, with, I, I mean, I love working with literature and performance. So any, any courses in, in poetry, in prose, Work doing something with poetry and prose, and you know, and performance studies would be amazing. Um, yeah, I would love it. I find that it's really important to find a unifying theme. Um, so, in the magic school, we had a, a story uh, that was the framework for w all we did, and through that, we connected different disciplines. Um, in your case, you're using uh, particular readings mm -hmm. that, that you're using to connect from various points. Almost anything works. That's the beauty of it. And especially, um, somebody mentioned earlier, service learning. That can form a core based on which you connect everything. But it's very important, I think, to have some kind of unifying theme, some some way of restricting you, because if you're going to look at all these different disciplines, um, you can't take on the whole world. You need to take uh, a narrow section <coughs> that go cuts across many different things and uh, be able to focus and um, restrict your, uh, your study in certain ways so that you can expand it in others. want actual personal responses to that. I mean, I, I think I would like to connect sort of the unexpected ways. Uh, there's a classic book from the early 20th century by Eric Temple Bell called Mathematics, Queen and Servant of Science. Uh, science isn't going to get anywhere without the math, but it's just a tool, so it's sort of way up and, and way down. And there's always been this linkage between math and all sorts of things scientific. But it's those unexpected places like you know, the arts and humanities mm -hmm. and poetry, and because there's, there's structure and and then it gives the math, I mean, math is not like bacon. Bacon makes anything better, right? But, um, but it's not clear that math can connect with everything sort of, art if you make it artificial, I mean, I think what Mary Angela said is true. You gotta find a theme, you gotta find mm -hmm. genuine connections instead of, let's drop a couple things in the blender and push puree and see what comes out. You gotta make those real connections. But I think in something like the humanities or the arts, that we can often get a little better view of ourselves as, as, math, as math geek types because we never talk too much out loud about the aesthetic of doing mathematics. You, know, like you don't hear us say very much like the, 
Best thing a person can say about a proof is that it's elegant, which means you use exactly the right ideas and no more and no less than you need. That's an aesthetic that's in mathematics. It's not just crunching. And, and maybe to get people past mathematics is not memorizing the multiplication tables and whatever the analogy to that is in college mathematics. It's actually about, I don't know, pardon my French, thinking. Um, instead of just learning techniques and repeating back the algorithms. And, you know, but it's actually what do you do when something new walks up to you on the street and says, hey, buddy, solve this. You know, you need lots of interesting tools in your toolbox. And so I think connecting with other people not only kind of ex broadens the perspective of what math can connect to from my perspective, um, but also of how we look at it our, ourselves. And, and again, knocking down those boundaries makes decisions look at things different ways. So why don't we go non-traditional as the book we're really looking at? Uh, just um, bouncing off that real quick, I was, this is a little bit different, but um, I will never forget this one course that I took as an undergrad that was, it was a humanities course, and it was, um, it was centered around the theme of, I, I'm pretty sure it was the 1920s. I think it was just the 20s. Or maybe it was the first, you know, I don't know, first couple decades of the 20th century. But it was focused on the literature, the music, the science, and the art. Um, maybe dance, too. I think dance was in there also. And so we looked at all of these different aspects of cultural production and science and history um, all together through that one, and it was one professor. Uh, I don't know how we did it, but it was, but we had, you know, it was tremendous, and it made me start to see all those connections in a really, really rich way, and connections between, you know, science and dance that I would never have seen if I hadn't been in that course. So, so to be able to do something like that with, you know, with other, with colleagues who are specialists in those different areas, and be able to sort of look at some of those connections and, you know, teach like that, I think would be great both for, you know, for the whole experience for students and faculty. And I think you're right, you know, looking for the, um, the unexpected connections. Um, speaking from personal experience, I think one of the critiques specific to Villanova and Villanova's context by my peers and my professors is that Villanova as a culture does not necessarily nurture intellectualism amongst the student body. Um, I was wondering, and it, it, as you had all mentioned or touched upon that, in fact, it's something that in order to create uh, greater structures of interdisciplinary studies, um, it has to start in some way with the students. So I was wondering, and I, I think it goes hand in hand that the more interdisciplinary uh, it becomes, the more uh, we start to recognize the intersectionality in uh, everything we do and everything we study. Um, I think that this culture that values more intellectualism will probably grow uh, more than it already has in some ways. Uh, but I was wondering what specific suggestions you might have uh, for us as students so that we can we can tend to this, I guess, greater goal. <laughs> Shall I pass it down, or do you want to do you want to start? You want to start? All right, and then you'll say something funny because <laughs> we now have a pattern going. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Well, first off, it's all about being excited about ideas. It's not about uh, and and. I guess fostering, and this is something that, you know, this is a problem with our 
culture at large, right? It's it's about um, it's about not expecting education to be just all about uh, practicality and where you're going to get a job and 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 not accumulating information and skills, right? But what does knowledge mean and what does, you know, you have to have the, in the, the curiosity about the world and curiosity about engaging ideas, you know, and what then ideas can do. So I think, I think um, uh, you know, I'd love to get rid of grades. That'll never happen. But I, I mean, I really think that the system has just perpetuated itself in a way that's, that, that, um, does not encourage learning, it encourages cramming. It encourages, you know, just get to the next thing, just get to the next thing, check off those boxes, you know. So I think an intellectual environment um, has to start with, a, you know, a love of ideas and being here to, you know, to truly learn. And I know that sounds really trite. It sounded better in my head than the way it sounded <laughs> as I'm saying it. But but I think that kind of has to be the start. Yeah. and and. It is a problem that uh, this generation of students has come of age at a time when there was a financial crisis. Uh, and so all you hear about is uh, college should prepare you for a good job and what's going to happen after you graduate. And um, we keep forgetting what it is that, that uh, we're here for um, to develop our intellect. Um, and especially in, um, in my discipline, computer science, that is very much the case. Um, we have a lot of students who chose computer science simply because they thought this would get them a good job. And I spend all my time uh, trying to convince students that computer science is a worthwhile intellectual pursuit even if you if it weren't for the jobs, uh, because there's something intrinsically interested, interesting about computational thinking uh, that will enrich the way you study other subjects um, or you study with other subjects. Um, there's a different way of thinking uh, that uh, will help anybody, uh, even if you don't choose to major in computer science, but and I think that is what computer science has to offer. And okay, so right now, if you graduate with a computer science degree, you also get a great job. But um, that's, um, it's sad that these two things are always being conflated. Okay, so now it's the funny thing? Yes. Yeah, the funny thing. <laughs> no, I, I think, there's some joint responsibility on, the, what I would ask for the students and the faculty is for faculty not to be scared to, to go off script every once in a while. I mean, you can imagine what my classes are like. <laughs> Sorry, back here. Um, but I figure if I say something totally off the wall or sort of crazy, sometimes it's just goofy, but often there's this kind of subtext of trying to plant something in their heads for 10 seconds and they, ch they chuckle and I go back to work and I do that six times in an hour. I've lost a whole minute out of a, you know, a 60 second class and in some cases, if I'm just being goofy, they wake up. But if I'm just saying, oh wow, uh, that, gee, that reminds me of a small phallus naked melody that's sleeping all the week in open ear. Okay, Canterbury Tales, I love the thing about the bird sleeping with an eye open and whatever, it's just crazy stuff. Or if I talk about my tie, which is how I try to tie things together because it's aesthetically nicely colorful and stuff and it's life sciences because it's, it's sunflowers. 
But, you know, sunflower seeds, there's a Fibonacci sequence in a way. The sunflower seeds come out, you know, and it's like, okay, now back to task. We feel pressure to not take those detours because, oh, I got to cover the syllabus, and, uh, and the students are going, man, that's not going to be on the test. Why do I need, although sometimes in class it's great. They'll, they'll look up, like, do I write this part down? Because <laughs> he's being kind of crazy. But for us to feel the freedom to do a little thing that maybe every once in a while connects it to something outside the course, and for students to be receptive if somebody crazy like me does that and say, well, now why did he, oh, wait a minute, oh, that kind of connects to, oh, wait, why did he do, oh, well, back to work, take it down. But to think outside the box a little bit and try to think about maybe we are intentionally making some connections for something outside. And even those little bitty pieces get the required sermon from me about chaos theory. Hi, chaos theory, guys. And that is, uh, I teach a course in chaos theory, and if you've ever seen my office, you understand. Okay. Um, but there is a classic phrase in chaos theory, a sensitive dependence on initial conditions, which means a little bitty change in input can often have a very big change in the output. And I think we miss some of those opportunities as, as givers and receivers of stuff in class and outside of class and in the community that you never know what little bitty piece is going to make some big difference later. It's like some Margaret Mead quote about, uh, don't think that one single person acting doesn't, can't make a difference in the world. That's the only way rebel change ever happens. It's not the exact quote, but it's something like that. And that's true. That don't be shy about little things making a big difference. And so both for us being passing it along and for people being receptive of squeeze in little things that don't seem to be on the syllabus, but make some connection somewhere else. I think this applies that to where we were. Actually, I want to add one more thing. Uh, I, think, um, I think I mentioned before how I wish that there was more connection between uh, academic life and student life. And, um, and I think that's part of the way to get that, that intellectual curiosity, that all of that just, just really connecting among um, among students within every aspect of their lives. And so even, you know, I, I wish that we had more opportunities to, um, to engage student and faculty interaction outside of the class. You know, and there, and there, are, there are some occasions to do that. You know, so in some of my classes, and, and people do this all the time, like, you know, trying to arrange um, some kind of an excursion or some sort of a, a dinner or you know doing things together that's not just about being in class and I used to be involved in the new student orientation uh, and I was involved in it specifically because I wanted the, the kind of work that I do in the classroom connected a lot to some things that I thought were important in orientation and so that gave me a chance to work with students in that capacity not again only in class and it was a you know orientation is a big part of student life so you know, so more connections like that, I think, would be, would be really good. Well, I have a closing question. Um, how did your experience play out today with having, like, not really a read each other's works, I assume, but coming together and speaking about your works and seeing how much they relate to each other? You know, makes me want to teach a class with you all. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a great idea. Uh, and I suggest that we teach a class in the cave, which is the virtual reality um, yeah. cave that, uh, uh, that our department has in, in the library here. Um, so, um, I found this experience very interesting, uh, being in this panel, and I'm really honored to have been asked to be on this panel. Um, especially what I found very striking was 
uh, I had to make no effort in finding connections between what I saw in your work and, and my work, my, my thinking, and my teaching. Um, in fact, you know, that's what inspired my earlier comment that really the connections are always there and um, you have to actually work to not see them. <laughs> Uh, so uh, I actually found it fascinating seeing um, uh, just recently um, I was talking with someone who was w uh, discussing poetry and the difficulty of poetry and how that is an important factor in education and we were talking about how the difficulty in some computer science subjects is similarly uh, a motivator, um, you know, so or <coughs> demotivator in some cases. <laughs> and so uh, I was surprised to see that that again poetry is coming mm -hmm. out uh, in terms of mathematics. Mm -hmm. And um, so everywhere I looked, <coughs> I saw connections, and I, I found it very. Uh, heartening and surprising. Uh, yeah, me too. The <laughs> 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 funny comment. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's reassuring that, well, I know ages ago, Father Ellis one time said to me, you know, Doug, you're really, you're really a closet humanist. <laughs> I had to go look up what he, what he meant by that. And I wasn't sure if it was an insult or a compliment or whatever, but um, I, I, I think it's true. I mean, you can people, I have all, all sorts of weird interests, but it's, it's reassuring. It, it doesn't mean I'm not crazy just because I like all this stuff, that I hear reassurances, but with this, with respect to this particular topic, that my colleagues and the students and everybody here do think that some of those connections are really important. It's, it's been a very reassuring thing for me that, that, that that's been reinforced uh, by these conversations here. Um, I, I think of you, whether Chief Seattle actually said this or it was a screenwriter in 1971 who now teaches film at Middlebury College, all things are connected even the unexpected ones. And it was reassuring today to find that we're connected in mm -hmm. the way that we look at some things about living here in, in the universe, too. Thank you. Thanks for coming. <laughs>